But let's pray and we'll dig into the word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We thank you for your word. I thank you for everyone who's here, uh, both those who are here uh, live and those that are watching us online. And we just thank you for the fact that we can gather together and that you are here in our midst. So Lord, be glorified tonight. I pray that the words of man would decrease and the word of God would go forth with power. Less of me, more of you. And Lord, give us all attentive ears. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen. amen. So in the last few weeks, 1 Kings, we know the, the end of David's life, at the beginning of the, of the book of 1 Kings, uh, King David, a mighty man of God who was also very flawed, but as every man of God is, but he was flawed. And then we saw that as he was about to die, he had to be nursed and he was, you know, they, they, one of his other sons tried to usurp his authority and take the throne. And David rose up and got the strength that he needed to, to anoint Sol, Solomon as the king. And so Solomon became king at a very young age. He's probably in his late teens. So he becomes the king of Israel and now he's on the throne and he had been warned by King David about some adversaries that David had that David was able to handle, but he was concerned as to whether or not Solomon would be able to. And in the end, Solomon, it, using uh, some of his right-hand men, put to death several of his adversaries, and, and some of them were banished, and some of them, one of the priests was no longer allowed to be a part of the priesthood. Now, then we saw in his very first year, Solomon, first of all, he makes a mistake right off the bat. He marries Pharaoh's daughter. And we know as we, when we get to chapter 11, it's going to say that the wives, the many wives, he has 700 wives and 300 concubines. And these many wives and concubines cause him to turn away and start to pursue after false gods. And he says he begins to do evil in eyes of the Lord. And, and as we've been going through, we see that Solomon is wise when it concerns other people. We saw him use wise counsel. If you remember the, the two women claiming which one the baby belonged to. And he said, well, just cut the baby in half. And then he found out the one that was willing to, would, the real mom would rather see the baby live somewhere else than die in her presence. And so we saw that wisdom that he had for other people, but he didn't always have it for himself. And we're going to see that continue tonight, unfortunately, that while he was so faithful, because if you remember from the last two chapters, he first went and met with the king of and the king in, in Lebanon, Tyre, and he asked him, you know, for supplies. And the king loved David, so he helped supply all the supplies they needed to build the temple. See, David wanted to build the temple, and God gave David the plans for the temple. But God said David couldn't build it because he was a man of war, and Solomon was going to be able to build it because it was a time of great peace. And so we saw last week that it took 180,000 men seven years to build the temple. And we saw that the temple, every bit, every bit of it picture, is a picture of the Lord. We'll go over more of that tonight. It's a picture of the Lord so clearly. And we saw that a lot of the most precious things were never even seen. The, all the stones that were cut out and hewn and all of it was covered up. And a lot of times that's how God does a work in us. A lot of the greatest work he does in us is the thing no one else ever sees. So as we come to chapter 7, <clears throat> if you don't have an outline, grab one. They're in the back table there. Uh, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And we're going to see four points in tonight's text. It's a lengthy chapter, 51 verses. A lot of it's kind of tedious where they're just going through and talking about every item. But we'll go through that in depth. We're going to see, first off... 
Solomon gets off track. So he just got done building the temple. And then we're going to see that he takes twice as much time as he did to build the temple to build himself a palace. Now, the good news is he built the temple first. That was the right thing to do. But the hard part is that he makes his house almost nicer than the temple. It seems like he wants his palace and what belongs to him to almost be better than what belongs to God. And this is a mark of somebody who doesn't always get it. Amen? Because guys, we should desire that God be glorified, not us. That God's name would be lifted up, not ours. That we would give more to the kingdom of God than we give for our own comfort. Amen? And sadly, we're going to see that Solomon is flawed. So I put point number one is put God first and give God your best. Quote that verse there from Matthew chapter six. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. And give, not only do we give to the Lord first, we give him our best and not, our, not the rest. Amen. Well, I'll give God if I have time left over. I'll give to God if I have resources left over. Guys, we don't give God the leftovers. We give God the best of what we have of our time and our talents and our resources. We're called not only to love God first, but we're called to love him most. Amen. If you're here and you're married, the best thing you can do for your spouse is love God more than you love them. Because if you love God more than you love them, you're going to love them in a supernatural way that will be impossible apart from the Lord. Amen. You want a spouse that is on fire for God, who loves Jesus more than they love you. If you're here and you're single, you should be looking for somebody who loves Jesus more than they love you. And that's the heart that we should have. Our priorities are also reflected by what we invest in. We're going to see him investing more in his own house that he invested in the kingdom of God. And this was something that he was called by God to do. And we'll also see something, a point, I'm going to point something out, that what our society invests in is a reflection of the priorities of our culture. What do we invest in as a society? And the things we invest in kind of reveal what our priorities are. And then secondly, when God calls you, he will equip you. So the first 12 verses is going to be, we're going to take a sidebar and talk about the palace. That King, that King Solomon's building for himself. And then he's going to get back to getting into some of the details that even though the temple is fully built, he's going to give some of the details about how all the furniture was built and what all the furniture was that went into the temple. But we're going to see that when the stuff was built for the temple, they used the best craftsmen on the planet. And guys, when we do things for the Lord, we want to use the best that we've got. Amen? Again, we do... Uh, use our best. And when God calls you, he will equip you. If God calls you to do something, he'll equip you to be able to do it. Point number three, may you come to church with a heart of worship. We're going to see as part of the temple, that there's, gonna, there's these mighty pillars that are right outside the temple. So when you enter into the temple, and we'll see the names of these pillars, and we're going to see how there's some significance there, that just those pillars themselves were preparing the hearts of the people for when they entered into the temple. And then finally, all the temple furnishings point to Jesus. Now, if you've been coming on Thursday nights, you already know this. And, but all the temple furnishings point to Jesus. So let's begin there in 1 Kings chapter 7, beginning there in verse 1. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let me give you again a little bit, of, a little bit more background. So chapter 6 ended, took 180,000 people, 180,000 men. Seven years to build a temple, the glorious home. Now, again, where's the temple today? Where is it? Terry, where is it? It doesn't exist, so it's in heaven. There's a temple in heaven, but where else? Where's the temple of the Holy Spirit? Uh, we are. We are. 
So we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit lives inside of us. We are the church. The church is not a building. But you need to understand in the Old Covenant that, again, the place where they went to make sacrifices and the place where they went to worship was the temple. Now, they also had synagogues, but they would go to the temple. And it was significant because it had been a tent for the first 430 years in the land of promise. And I can kind of imagine, uh, if you've been to Israel, the Temple Mount is so clear to see, and that's where the temple was built. And you can imagine... Uh, being across the Kidron Valley out on the Mount of Olives and looking out and seeing the gold and the marble as the sun shined on the temple. And it was an amazing sight to see. And it had been built and according to the divine plan that had been given by God to King David. And from the fourth year till the 11th year of Solomon's reign, he's building the temple. But he started getting the materials in his first year. So he has basically spent 10 years building the temple, the house of God. We know that God dwells everywhere. But this was the place where uh, the Ark of the Covenant was. It's where the, the, on the Day of Atonement they would go. It was a place where they brought the sacrifices that all pointed to the Lord. And so Solomon had been, been building it again since the very first year. And before we know it again, we're, as we come to tonight's text, you know, he used a lot of wisdom in building the temple. He used the wisdom that comes from God to counsel people. But when it comes to himself, he doesn't apply the same wisdom to himself that he applies to others often. And that was one of the frailties of King Solomon. Again, a man of wisdom and wealth and power that he used in making God's house a priority, building his house as a priority. And it was a very good thing that Solomon made the building of God's house top priority. We too should always make doing what we do for the Lord more important than anything else we do. Can I get an amen? amen? It's the most important thing we do. When this time has come and passed, only what we've done for Christ will last. So the first 12 verses tonight, we're going to see that wise Solomon, as we talked about, is going to take get sidetracked a little bit. And it's not wrong for him to build a palace for himself. But the amount of resources he uses and the amount of time that he spends doing it uh, by the way, his palace is going to be four times the size of the temple. I think there's a problem. Can I get an amen? And it just shows, again, just a reflection of where your treasure is. There your heart will be also. Again, I'm pointing these out because we're, on, we're just four chapters away from when it says that Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not fully follow the Lord as it did his father David. The women that he gets, see, he, he allows himself to have as many women as he wants. They draw him away from the Lord. The fact that he has power, some of it's drawing him away from the Lord. The fact that he has the ability to build himself whatever he wants, he goes overboard. And again, in so doing, it's taking the focus off of the Lord. The palace, again, while it doesn't have the spiritual significance, it's gonna, it's, it has the ability to take people's eyes off of the Lord. Look at verse 1 there. Beginning, put God first and give God your best. But Solomon took 13 years to build his own house, so he finished his house. So this temple's been completed. It was built well. It was truly glorious. And again, you can imagine just the central focus that it had in all of Jerusalem and what people would see it. There was a joy that no doubt came over the hearts of the people. That no longer did God dwell in a tent 
But now he had a glorious temple that was worthy of his name, and it was a place where the people would gather to not only worship the Lord, but to make sacrifices. So it took seven years to build the temple, and it takes 13 years to build Solomon's house. And it gives us a sense that Solomon wanted his house to be more glorious than the Lord's. Now, I can't say that definitively, but again, if, if God's house is there and it's a pretty awesome site and you make your house four times the size, and he doesn't even build a house, he builds a compound. He has multiple houses all connected and multiple, we're gonna see it tonight, and each of these halls in different places are all built and they're built with the most, you know, the, all the cedars of Lebanon. And, and when he does this, he's, he's gonna have a house that's greater than any, anything that's in the, in the land. And that's not the heart of a servant. And again, it's okay for a king to have a, a good house, but it shouldn't be trying to outshine the Lord. Verse two, he also built the house of the forest of Lebanon. Its length was a hundred cubits, its width 50 cubits, its height 30 cubits with four rows of cedar pillars and cedar beams on its pillars. Now remember a cubit was the distance between your elbow and the tip of your middle finger. So that, that could always be a little different, but roughly it's about a foot and a half. And we know that the temple was only 90 feet long. This is 150 feet. This is just one building. This is not all the buildings. This is just one building. It's 75 feet wide. The temple is only 60 feet wide. It's 45 feet high. Temple is only 30 feet high. So it's bigger. It's wider. It's higher. And it's only one of the many buildings that are going to be in King Solomon's compound that he's building for himself. So much of the cedar wood from Lebanon. If you guys were here in chapter 15, you remember that he and the king, the king had loved David and he'd gone to the king to ask for materials. And if you remember, he turned them into rafts and brought them down the, the river and then they would pull them out of the river. And these great, these were the best trees on the planet, these cedars of Lebanon, these huge majestic pillars. And it took three years to get all of the, the wood that they needed to build the temple before they could begin building it. So this was referred to as the house of the forest of Lebanon because he used so much. It's not in Lebanon. It's in Jerusalem. And it's, it's believed to have been just south of the temple. And so they're building this massive, you know, compound for King Solomon just south of the temple. And it's going to be larger and in some ways more majestic. So beautiful cedar everywhere, cedar panels, cedar, cedar beams. So here's what happens. They got all these pillars. We're going to see there's 45 pillars. On top of the pillars, they put beams. On top of the beams, they got paneling going up to the top. And it's just going to be this you know, awesome and beautiful uh, cedar, um, like I said, cedars of Lebanon. So it's this beautiful place. He's building it. Isaiah 22 tells us that at least part of this building was used as an armory. The building's so huge that not only did David li or Solomon live in a part of it, along with the other buildings. We're going to see multiple buildings. But part of it was used to store all of his weaponry. It says in 1 Kings chapter 10 that over 500 golden shields hung in the rafters of the, of the uh, forest of Lebanon. So you walk in and not only is it majestic in size, not only has it got the cedar of Lebanon, but you walk in there, now you see all of their, some of their, their military stuff lined up. You see all the shields that are there. And it's a pretty awesome sight. And it says there in verse 3, And it was paneled with cedar above the beams, which with 45 pillars, 15 to a row. And there were windows, beveled frames in three rows. And windows were opposite 
window in three tiers. And all the doorways and doorposts had rectangular frames and windows was opposite window in three tiers. Verse six, he also made the hall of pillars. So he had the house of the forest of Lebanon and now he has the hall of pillars. In length, it was 50 cubits and its width 30 cubits. And the front of them was a portico with pillars and a canopy was in front of them. So this building by itself is almost as big as the temple. It's not as big as the first building that he's built. And it's believed that this, this, this was just a link from one building to another. That you could go out of the, the uh, first building, which is called the House of the Forest of Lebanon. And you could walk through the Hall of Pillars that would bring you to the Hall of Judgment. And this is where his throne would be. So his throne's in the hall of judgment. It's there that people would come to be judged by King Solomon. And we're again, we're beginning to see this huge, this massive compound that he's creating for himself. Seems to have connected again, the Lebanon palace to the throne room. Look at verse seven. Then he made a hall for the throne, the hall of judgment where he might judge. And it was paneled with cedar from floor to ceiling. So, Every one of these places is built with the most beautiful wood on the planet. We're going to see later on that beautiful stones and other things are used in its creation. It's going to take 13 years to build. And it only takes that long when you're making it, again, as beautiful as you can, where, where resources are not limited in any way. And so the temple's been built. The temple is awe-inspiring. God's using it. It's a place to worship. It's a place to sacrifice. And now right behind it, King Solomon's building a compound that's going to dwarf the temple in size. Again, do not believe that is God's heart. Verse 8. And the house where he dwelt had another court inside the hall. So again, and house, houses within there where he dwelt. And it said, of like workmanship, Solomon also made a house like his hall for Pharaoh's daughter, whom he had taken as wife. Now we talked about this, that one of the first things you see Solomon do as king, he's still a young man. He takes Pharaoh's daughter as his wife. And the word of God had already commanded that you're not to marry pagans. You're not to marry unbelievers. You're not to give your sons to their daughters or your daughters to their sons. You're not to be unequally yoked with the world. But the culture would often marry into another kingdom so they could have peace. Now remember, they've had 430 years in the land of promise. But who were they in bondage to before that? Who was it? It was Egypt. So they're intermarrying into Egypt. The very people that had enslaved them for uh, 430 years. The very people that had enslaved them. And now they're going to be linked to them. But he disobeyed God in doing so. And here's what you find. When you allow yourself to disobey God in one area of your life, you're opening the doors to disobey God in all areas of your life. Can I get an amen? And what I mean by that is that I'm not saying we don't. How many guys sinned today? Okay, if your hands are up and you're prideful and you just sinned again. Can I get an amen? So the reality is we're all sinners saved by grace. And we're, you know, Christians, we don't, we're not sinless, but we should sin less. Amen. But I'm talking about where you have an area of your life where you know you are acting contrary to God and you live in it. You just live in it. You just, you know, you're bringing back Agag. Remember the soul, you know, kill all the Amalekites and it brings back the king. Saul did. 
And you know, we can do the same thing. We can have an area of our life that we just turn a blind eye to and we let that sin exist. Well, Solomon's got that problem and his problem is women. And again, because he's a man, you know, he, he, he took his father's sin and he multiplied it. And that's not uncommon because King David had a problem with women, but King, for every woman King David had, Solomon had 50. And Solomon took the sin of his father and it multiplied. And so he builds a house for, for one of his wives in his compound. And this, all this reminded me of is those, like those TV shows where these people, the polygamy TV shows where they all got a house in the same cul-de-sac right? They're on TV right now. They're always in Utah, by the way. And you see it and you see this, you know, it's a sister wives and they have, the guy has five wives and they're in five houses and he bounces from house to house. I'm thinking, man, that started with King Solomon. So he's building houses for his different wives within his, concub- within his uh, compound, if you will, at least here for Pharaoh's daughter. It says, all these were of costly stones cut to size, trimmed with saws inside and out from the foundation of the eaves also to the outside of the great court. The foundation was of costly stones, large stones, some 10 cubits, some eight cubits, some 15 feet, some 12 feet. And above all were costly stones hewn to size and cedar wood. And the great court was enclosed with three rows of of hewn stones and a row of cedar beams. So were the inner court of the house of the Lord and the vestibule of the temple. Here's what they're saying. He built his courtyard with just as precious of stones and just as beautifully as he did the temple that was for the Lord, except that his was four times the size. And again, our heart should always be that God is the one who is glorified. We don't want to draw attention to ourselves. We want to point people to him. Can I get an amen? You look at the temple and the temple was awesome. But then when you begin to put this compound next to it, it's taking some of the focus off the Lord where it needed to be. So Solomon builds a house where he will live as well as a separate house for Pharaoh's daughters. And again, they use the most costly materials available. Now, a couple things can be said here before we move on. He did at least build the Lord's house first. Amen. He built the Lord's house first. King David kind of did it the other way. King David had built a palace for himself and they looked out and realized that God had a tent. And he's like, wait a minute, how can I have a beautiful house and God has a tent? Now, again, we know that God is everywhere. We know that God's not limited to a tent. Amen. But the point is the place where they went to worship the Lord was a tent and David had this massive palace. So David wanted to build the Lord, uh, uh, the temple for the Lord and the Lord wouldn't let him. He got the plans from God, got the art, you know, the architectural sketches, if you will. He gathered up a lot of the supplies that would be needed. And then God told him, no, you can't build it. So David's heart was once he knew that his house had been built, his heart was to build it, build something for the Lord. And he was grieved in his heart. Solomon's almost the opposite. It almost seems like he got building the temple for the Lord out of the way. So he could get to building his house. And when he goes to build his house, he spends more time and no doubt by the end of it, more resources to build a compound unto himself. And again, it can take the focus off the Lord. Now, it is important that we always look to God first. It says in, in Haggai, 
uh, chapter 4, verse 1. Why are you living in luxurious houses while my house lies in ruins? See, the Israelites in Haggai's day were ones who were responsible for building the second temple after their return from Babylon, but they were rebuked because they built their own houses before they built God's house. Now, this is, I know this is a little sketchy. Let me just say this. Today, we are the church, and we're, we're meeting outside in the overhang at a Christian school, and God's here. Can I get an amen to that? We're two more gathered in his name. There he is in the midst of us. And we don't put our focus on a building. We put our focus on the Lord. Amen? That being said, it's, it's sad that men of God, like David and Solomon, would focus on building something for themselves, making themselves comfortable, instead of focusing on the Lord. And we all can fall into that same trap. It says later in Haggai, after a result of neglecting God's priorities in their lives, it says, you have, planted much you have planted much, but harvest little. You eat, but are not satisfied. You drink, but you are still thirsty. You put on clothes, but you cannot keep warm. Your wages disappear as though you were putting them in pockets filled with holes. See, when we put ourselves in front of the Lord, we're never going to come out ahead. Can I get an amen to that? It's never going to work out the way that you think that it will. Guys, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. God must be the priority first in our lives. Amen? True success in this life is walking in intimate fellowship with the creator of the universe, and nothing else compares. And the world will say success is determined by how much money you have in your bank account or how many, how many initials you have after your name or whatever, they, you know, whatever the other ways of success. And the reality is, it's all going to burn. It's all just wood, hay, and stubble. And when this time has come and passed, only what we've done for Christ will last. See, while Solomon built God's house first, you still get a sense that he wanted his own house to be as good or greater than the temple itself. So the great court, the great court, it said there in verse 12, was enclosed with these three rows of huge stones and a row of cedar beams. And when they were in the inner house of the Lord and the vestibule, just like what was taking place in the temple. So you have the house of the forest of Lebanon, the hall of pillars, the hall of judgment, the house of Pharaoh's daughter. And again, they spared no expense building this compound for Solomon. So much so that the inner court and all the buildings were like that again of the temple. Now Solomon built his house and they did as, as they did in the temple. And again, my concern there is that his focus is as much or more on himself than it is on the Lord. Now, let me say this. I'm just going to go off track just for a minute. And I don't, please don't confuse this. But I've been to countries where they have old cathedrals. If you go to Israel, there's churches that are 600 years old. And, and I like walking into them. The architecture is beautiful. I will say this, you walk into them, they feel really empty. And they're empty because the Lord's not there. The word of God's not being preached. And as Pastor Chuck used to say, when you walk away from the word of God, a movement becomes a memorial and the, and, and the buildings become monuments to what once was. But what I've always been, what's always kind of captured me though, a little bit, and again, I'm not a big believer in big cathedrals, but when you would go into those towns 
And I've been to some towns in Europe and different places where the most magnificent building in the whole town is the church. Now, the only thing that, that does catch me about that is it tells me that those people who lived in that town chose to make their major investment of the town in building a church where they could worship. And you know what? There's something about that that I think is pretty awesome. Because the focus was, and nobody who built that church, who gave of their resources and gave of their time, would ever even think about building a place even close to as nice as the place where God has worshipped to live in for themselves. So there's a level of, of reverence for God and a humility about themselves that was, that was sorely missing with Solomon. Now, while many of these cathedrals are simply, again, monuments to what once was, and by the way, most of them you go into, they have horrible, they would be horrible for teaching the Bible. Because the, the, the way they sound is horrible. They're probably good for music, maybe, but man, they're echoey, and they're just, you know, and they look more like museums than churches. But at the time, I'm sure there was a time where the word of God was taught there. Something to be said, again, for a society that invests the most in places of worship. The Bible says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It says something about their heart and their priorities. And Solomon's heart and priorities were revealed in his desire that his house would be greater than the temple. So we're called not only to, put God, to love God first, but we're to love him most. So what does it say when we say where your treasure is, there your heart will be also? What does that say about our society today? What do we invest in? What are our cathedrals today? What are the greatest buildings that we make in our culture? What are they? Well, three things that came to mind. Amusement parks. Disneyland. Shopping malls. Sports stadiums. There's a bunch of new sports stadiums that all cost over a billion dollars. And, and that's what our society invests in. We invest in places that will entertain us, places where we can go buy stuff, and places where we can go and cheer on our idols. Amen? And we're investing in that. And at the same time, we see that there's very little focus on, the, on honoring the Lord. Amen? I mean, the new, the new Ram Stadium and Ram and Charles, it's $2 billion for a place for a guy just to play football. And again, it just tells us what the priorities are in our, in our, in our world today. Amen? You know, it's funny because people miss church to go to amusement parks. People miss church to go shopping and people miss church to go to football games. <laughs> Can I get an amen? And the reality is that, that where your treasure is, the things that you invest in tell a lot about what's important to you. Guys, what are you investing in? What is the prior? Now, again, you know, look, if you're new to Calvary Chapel, you're watching on live stream, we don't even pass an offering here because I don't, I don't believe in tipping God. And I believe that, you know, we're, we're to give from a cheerful heart. Can I get an amen to that? So I'm just asking for, for us personally, it has nothing to do with this church. You know, what do you invest in? What do you invest your time in? How's, how's your time in the Word compared to your time on Netflix? Amen? How, you know, what do you hunger for? The Bible says we desire the Word of God more than our necessary food. And we live in a culture that values everything else. By the way, how much has God even been talked about during the latest political, all this stuff that's going on, we don't see God even in the equation very often. Can I get an amen to that? And we need to be talking about the Lord. Guys, here's the good news. God is still on the throne and he always will be. And they can't vote him out of office. Can I get an amen to that? 
And so praise the Lord for that. And we keep our eyes on the throne of grace, not the White House. Amen. Now we should get out and vote and vote biblically. But no matter what happens, God's still in control and we trust him. But we live in a society right now that people hate each other over stuff that's all going to burn. Amen. And we're called to be peacemakers, not troublemakers. And we want to win people, not win arguments. Amen. And so the sad part is that as Solomon is investing in his own house to this degree, again, he's the king. I guess he has the right to do it to some degree. We know he's the wealthiest man on the planet. He's supposed to be the wisest man on the planet. But nothing we do should ever dwarf the name of the Lord. Amen? It should never put the focus on us. It should always put the focus on him. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. The priorities of our culture are reflected by what we invest in. And the focus is on flesh-driven, fun, worldly possessions, and the idolizing of the most athletic among us. To the point now where athletes think they can tell us how to live and think and vote. Is there any truth to that? I really don't care what LeBron thinks about anything. I really don't. I'm praying for his salvation. He needs Jesus. Amen? I, I, you know what? And, and they think they can tell, well, because I can hit, a, I have a stick and I can hit a ball really far. This is how you should live your life. Really? Uh, guess what? Walk not in the counsel of the ungodly. Can I get an amen? I want to get counsel from the word of God, not the words of men. But we idolize. When I was a kid growing up, I didn't get to have any sports. I could not put uh, any kind of posters on my wall. My dad would come and go, those are, take that down. Take that down. We worship Jesus. We don't worship man. Take that down. I thought, Dad, really? Yeah. Don't idolize men. Focus on Jesus. Can I get an amen to that? It's an exhortation. You know, again, I like to go on roller coasters. They give me good, clean fun, but I don't love roller coasters more than Jesus. Amen. I don't invest more in my Disney passes than I do furthering the kingdom of God. Can I get an amen to that? Amen. I don't spend more. I don't spend money on, on, on season tickets to, uh, by the way, I'm just done with sports. I can't take it anymore. I really, I'm just writing it off. I'm done because I'm tired. I'm just tired of the hypocrisy. I'm tired of focusing on what athletes think instead of what God's word says. Amen. And we can pray for them. And I played football through college and I still love it, but, and I just love Jesus so much more. Now, while I would never want a great cathedral for a church, we should desire to give God not only our first, but our best. Now, we are the church wherever we go. You know, Pastor Chuck, if you've ever been to Calvary Costa Mesa, there's nothing really all that awe-inspiring about the building. But what I love about it is it's clean and it's functional and God gets glorified. Amen? It's built well. People can be there. And God is glorified should seek to do all that we do with excellence for the glory of the Lord. Now, so we've had this 12-verse sidestep to talk about King Solomon and his palace and how amazing it is, and how many houses, you know, how much money it costs and what he built. And now we're going to move back to finishing off talking about the temple. It's going to be dedicated next week in chapter 8. But before it's dedicated, which is an amazing chapter, by the way, 1 Kings chapter 8, we're now going to look at the detail of everything that went into the temple. And there's a reason why this is important. Because point number two there, after put God first and give God your best, when God calls you, he will equip you. For the, for the temple to be built, people had to use their gifts. For the, for the church to be healthy, we have to use our gifts. Every single time we have church, 
Pastor Joshua exhorts you guys to use your gifts. Can I get an amen to that? And the reason that he does, let me say a couple things and we'll move on to the text. I believe we grow the most when we use the gifts God's given us. Amen? And I believe when, when we get out of our comfort zone and we allow ourselves to be used for the Lord and for his kingdom, even when we don't feel adequate, just know that God doesn't uh, call the equipped, he equips the called. And I believe that when you step out in faith, if God calls you to do something, he'll give you the, the strength to do it. First time I ever taught the Bible to adults, I had five minutes notice. And at that point in my life, I was in my early 20s. I had taught four Bible studies to five girls in the youth group. And now all of a sudden with five minutes notice, I'm sitting in the front row right here with my suit and tie on. I had just driven to Lancaster from LA. My wife and I had put our daughter in the nursery. I'm sitting in the front row waiting to be fed from the word of God after a 12 hour work day. The secretary came out the side and called me up and said, Pastor John needs to talk to you. I thought he needed me to do something. I jumped up, I walked into his office. The phone was off the hook and he wasn't there. And I said to her, he's not here. She goes, yeah, he's on the phone. I pick up the phone. He said, my flight was delayed. I'm at LAX, you're teaching. I saw him teaching when? <laughs> he said, they're probably in the last worship song right about now. And I'm like, that ain't even right. And I taught James chapter one, count it all joy, my brother, when you fall into various trials, because I was in one. Can I get an amen to that? And the amazing part is that night, two people got saved and one of the, the um, husband and wife got saved and the husband that got saved ended up being my, youth, my worship leader when we moved to Santa Cruz. God knows what he's doing. Can I get an amen? But the point I'm making is that God didn't bless me because so, I was so gifted. He, he, he gave me what I needed to do what he called me to do. Amen? I didn't have any time to, to study. I, I'm glad there's no tape of that message. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. God, that's not floating around. That'd be blackmail material somewhere. But, but the reality is that, guys, it's when we get out of our comfort zone, and even we don't really feel like we can do it. Guys, it's, it's less of us and more of him. We've got to trust the Lord to show up. Amen. And so we're going to see it tonight in the rest of the text as he's talking about. It's going to be very detailed. We'll get some applications as we go through it. But we're going to see that when God calls you, he will equip you here in the next two verses. Look at verse 13 and 14. Now, King Solomon sent and brought Huram from Tyre. Now, this is not the king that had donated all the supplies. This is another man from Tyre. It's not Hiram, it's Huram. And it says there, he was the son of the widow from the tribe of Naphtali. So he's part Jewish. And his father was a man from Tyre. So he, this man that was called was half Jewish and half Gentile. And it says, a bronze worker... He was filled with wisdom and understanding and skill in working with all kinds of bronze work. So he came to King Solomon and did all of his work. So notice, I love this picture here. Hiram, again, is this man that's half Jewish, half Gentile. I love that how the temple was not only built just by Jews because the house of God isn't just for the Jewish people, it's for all people. Can I get an amen to that? And I think that you can make a point that God gives skills to skilled people that he might use them for his kingdom and his glory if they will make themselves available. Back in Exodus, when they built the tabernacle in the time of Moses, there was a man by the name of Bezalel. And God said to Moses, I have filled him with the spirit of God in wisdom and understanding and in knowledge and in all manner of workmanship. See, when a man has a calling on his life to do something, God is going to equip him to be able to do it. As he did with Bezalel, and now he does with Haram. This man has got wisdom, 
and understanding. Because not only did he have to create and build things, keep in mind, you couldn't just run it down to the engineers and you know have a, have a mold made for the most part, right? He had to learn how to create these things and he had to learn how to do it out of bronze and out of gold and he had to have wisdom. But you know what? When God calls someone to do it, God will equip them to do what he's called them to do. You know, if we have special skills, I pray that whatever those skills may be, we aren't just using them for ourselves, but we're using them for God's glory. Amen? Most of you guys know I sell advertising for a living. I've owned the same company for 32 years. And certainly God has gifted me to be able to communicate with people. But I want to tell you something. Not one message taught out of the word of God means more than 32 years of talking to people about advertising. Amen? And while God uses that gift he's given me uh, to provide for my family, that's not really what the gift, the main gift that he's given me is to be able to teach the word of God and to minister to God's people. Now, when, I, when God calls you, he will equip you. But I want to say this before we move on, but it doesn't mean you won't have to work hard. Amen? When God has called you to do something, it's going to require, the Bible says to study to show yourself approved, a workman who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. He may call someone and gift them to teach the word of God, but that brother better spend 20, 30 hours in the word of God preparing so he can teach the word of God and not just say, well, I'm gifted and I'm anointed like these knuckleheads on TV. I'm anointed, so I don't have to study. If you won't bother studying, I'm not going to bother listening. Can I get an Amen. So when God calls you, he will equip you. And again, there will be effort on your part. So some of you might be praying about, maybe I should help with the children's ministry. Children's ministry, we've got more children down there than we've ever had, and it continues to grow. And it's going to continue to grow. We're going to need more people to serve. And maybe you feel like, oh, I don't have that gift. How do you know? Amen. <laughs> Amen. If you got a burden for kids, come on down, we'll help you. And, and when you step out in faith a little bit, guess what? God will equip you to do whatever that is that he's calling you to do. And there'll be more ministry opportunities available as our church continues to grow. Point number three, may you come to church with a heart to worship. Look at what it says here, in verse, beginning there in verse 15. And he cast two pillars of bronze, each one 18 cubits high, and a line of 12 cubits measured the circumference of each. So they were 27 feet tall, these pillars made of bronze. That's a deal. And they were 18 feet around. So these are some, these are some pillars. So 27 feet tall and 18 feet in circumference. And these pillars were at the very entrance to the temple. And they're pretty awe-inspiring. And we'll talk about them as we continue on. Look at verse 16. Then he made two capitals of cast bronze to set on top of the pillars. The height of one capital was five cubits. So another seven and a half feet. And the height of the other was five cubits. So it's 27 feet tall with a cap on top of it. It was seven and a half feet. So these are almost 35 feet tall. These huge pillars that were right at the uh, face of the... When you walked toward the temple, when you walked in toward the outer court of the temple, and you came into that place where sacrifices were made, there were these huge 
pillars that would greet you. It says he made a lattice network with reeds of chain work for the capitals, which are on top of the pillars, seven chains from one capital and seven for the other. So he made the pillars and two rows of pomegranates above the network all around the cover of the capitals that were on top. And thus he did for the other capital. If, when you, if you were here in Exodus and Leviticus and you saw the tabernacle and the priestly robes and there's always pomegranates on stuff and people will say, why, is, why are there pomegranates on there? You know, pomegranate is the most, bears the most fruit of any fruit. It's just, you know, if you open up a pomegranate, first of all, are they a mess? Can you eat a pomegranate and not look like you just delivered a baby? You know what I mean? I mean, it's just, you're just covered in, you know, I just steered, I'm like, dude, yeah, I'm going to look like I, yeah. But the point is that the, the whole fruit is just filled with seeds that make more fruit. It's the most fruitful fruit there is. And I don't think that it's by chance that something that's fruitful is something that would be in the temple. Amen. And it says there, my capitals were on top of the pillars, the hall, verse 19, the hall were in the shape of lilies, four cubits. The capitals on the two pillars also had pomegranates above by the convex surface, which is on the next of the network. I'm not sure what that means. And there were 200 such pomegranates in rows in each of the capitals all around. Then he set on the pillars by the vestibule of the temple. So this is the center portion of the temple as you're entering in to the temple. He set up the pillar on the right, called its name Jashin, and on the or Yashin, and on the he set up the other pillar on the left and called its name Boaz. Now, one of the things I love about this, these two pillars that were just awe-inspiring in the middle of the temple, and it was one of his biggest projects was to make these two pillars. And these pillars greeted all those who came to worship. Now I love that. The pillars, now it's interesting because when they had the tabernacle, there was a pillar in the tabernacle, but it was a pillar that moved. You guys remember this? There was a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of a cloud by day. And when they would wake up in the morning, the first thing they would do is come out to the opening of their tent and look to see if the pillar moved. Because the pillar rested on the ark of the, above the ark of the covenant, above the holy of holies. And if the pillar moved, the people had to pack up and pack up the tabernacle and move to wherever God's presence was. God's presence, was, God's presence wasn't where the tabernacle was. The tabernacle was moved to where God's presence was. Amen. And what a great example for us. We should get up every morning and, and be looking up, if you will, and spend time in God's presence to see where he wants to move us today. Amen. So it's interesting to me that there were, you know, a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud that led them through the wilderness. And now you have two pillars that were not a part of the tabernacle, but are a part of the temple when you enter in. Now, one of the names, Yashin, literally means he will establish. And Boaz, that's the name of Ruth's husband, right? Boaz, King, David, King David's great grandmother, right? Boaz means in him is strength. And I love this. So the two things that the names of these pillars are, he will establish and in him is strength. And guys, when we come into the presence of the Lord, what does he do? He establishes us as his children. Amen. He's the foundation we stand on. And he's the one that gives us strength to live sold out and set apart lives. Amen. And so when you come into the place of worship, you should recognize I'm coming here. 
for the Lord to minister to me, for the Lord to speak to me, for the Lord to establish me, if you will. And I'm coming here to be strengthened by the Lord. Amen? And so as they would enter into the temple, I love that to two pillars he will establish, and in him is strength, were the pillars that they walked through to enter into his presence. He established us in him. He gives us strength. He empowers us to love, to serve, to follow and obey. You know, when we use the term pillar today, when you use that term, when you say someone's a pillar of society, what does that mean? Important person. person. Somebody who's solid. Somebody who's stable, somebody who has, a, has great influence. He's a pillar of society, right? Pillar in your community. It appears also that these pillars spoken of here are in heaven. Jesus writes to the overcomers in the church of Philadelphia, speaking of pillars. He says, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and will write on him my new name. Those who overcome in this life, By the power of the Lord, the Lord and follow the Lord faithfully are the pillars of the community in heaven. If God needed someone to do something, are you a person that he could use? Are you someone who wants to be a pillar for the Lord? Do you want God to use you in a mighty way? Do you want to sit on the sidelines with your get out of hell free card and just wait till till judgment day? Or do we want to live our life in such a way that we bring glory and honor to the name of our Savior? Amen? Lord, help us. Not to be satisfied with saved souls and wasted lives. Isaiah 6, 8 says this. I heard a voice to the Lord saying, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then I said, here I am. Send me. One of my favorite verses. Who will go for us? The Lord's not looking for a better method or a better building or a better message. He's looking for men and women who will say, here I am, Lord. Send me. Lord, you need somebody? I'm in. I don't care what the question is. The answer is yes. Lord, use me for your kingdom and for your glory. So point number three there, may, we, may you come to church with a heart to worship. Can I encourage you? My dad used to teach me this growing up. He said, you prepare for sun, Sunday morning on Saturday night. And uh, I had a sibling, an older brother that would stay out late. My dad would wake him up and he'd be at church just barely. You know what I mean? you know, falling asleep during church. And my dad would always tell me, son, you're going to go spend time with the Lord tomorrow. You know, if Jesus were coming to the house for breakfast, would you get a good night's rest? Would you get up early and and shower up and get ready? Would you, would you be prepared to spend time with him? And that should be our heart on Sunday. And on can I get an amen to that? Let's make God a priority. Let's make coming to see him a priority. Um, By the way, if you're going to make God a priority, you need to show up on time. Amen. We don't just, worship is not the warm-up for the message. Worship is the only thing we do on earth we're going to do in heaven. So finally now, he's going to give some details about all that was made for the temple there, beginning in verse 23. Um, verse 22, he says, The tops of the pillars were in the shape of lilies, so the work of the pillars was finished. No wonder it took 13 years to build everything in this temple, because we're just beginning with the list of all the furniture and things that go in to the temple. It says he made the sea of ca- a sea of cast bronze. Now, we know what the bronze laver is, and the bronze laver is there, but on top of the bronze laver is this thing called a sea. And what it really was, was, was like a small swimming pool. 
you take the, if we take the measurements, it could hold about almost 12, about 11,600 gallons of water. And so it was like a large place where the priests would go to be cleansed when they were making sacrifices. It says 10 cubits from one brim to the other, that's 15 feet. It was completely around. Its height was seven and a half feet. It's not like a swimming pool. In the line of 30 cubits measured its circumference, so 45 feet around. Below its brim were ornamental buds encircling it all around, 10 a cubit all the way around the sea. The ornamental buds were cast in, two rows were on its cast. Now, as we're going through this, and this is tedious, and you're wondering why we're reading this, here's what I want you to remember. Our God is a God of order. And everything he does, he does for a reason. And some of this, we may not fully understand why it's there or why it's not. I tell you what, when we get to heaven, we're going to find out. And I want to tell you right now that God does things the way he does because he's God and he knows what's best. And he is a God of order. Can I get an amen? amen. And I love that picture. So it's on there for a reason. It stood on 12, it says there, ornamental, but it stood on 12 oxen. Three looking to the north, three looking toward the west, three looking toward the south, and three looking toward the east. So there were these oxen that were made, these oxen on top of it would sit this big, huge bronze like swimming pool. And it was on top of them. And these oxen were pointing in different directions, three looking north, south, east, and west. And it was seated on their backs. The sea was set upon them and all their back parts pointed inward. It was a hand breadth thick. So it was this thick on the edge. Its brim was shaped like the brim of a cup, like a lily blossom. It contained 2,000 baths. That's where you get the 11,600 gallons. So this is the brassy sea, if you will. In heaven, we got the glassy sea. Can I get an amen to that? And I'm looking forward to that day. Now, portable laver. So this is a huge thing where they would the, the, they could be cleansed. We'll talk about all this stuff briefly at the very end. And then it says, he also made 10 carts of bronze, verse 27. Four cubits was the length of each cart. Four cubits was its width. Three cubits was its height. And this was the design of the carts that had panels and panels were between frames. And on the panels that were between them, there were lions, oxen, and cherubim. Now, I love this. Whenever I see animals in the Bible, uh, I can see that all three of these, in my mind, point to Jesus. Who's the lion of the tribe of Judah? Jesus is. Who's the one whose yoke is easy, his burden is light, and who do the oxen represent when they were sacrificed? Who? Jesus. And the angels, the angelic host, are the ones that always sing his praises. And when you go through the temple, remember when, we got in, when you get inside the temple, anybody who got inside, all the walls were covered with etchings of angels. Because when you get to heaven, who's around the throne singing, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come? Who's singing that? The angels. We saw that in the temple, as opposed to tabernacle, last week we saw there were two seven and a half feet tall angels on either end in the Holy of Holies. And then there were cherubim on top of the, of the uh, Ark of the Covenant on the mercy seat. Again, because the angels worshiped the Lord all day long. Amen? And, when, and they were the ones to announce when Jesus rose from the dead. And guys, all of this is a picture of heaven. See, the reason all this looks the way that it does, and the reason it's so organized, and the way that it is, is that, we, that the Lord told David, and, and also Moses was told, to create it exactly the way he was told, because it's a picture of heaven. And we don't want to mess up the picture of heaven. Amen? 
And even as we see this, we don't fully grasp how great heaven's going to be, and we won't until we get there. And on the frames was a pedestal on top. Below the lions and oxen were wreaths of plated work. Every cart had four bronze wheels and axles of bronze. Now keep this in mind. All the bronze things that we see are all in the courtyard. Everything inside the holy place or the holy of holies is made out of gold. Bronze speaks of judgment and gold speaks of deity, the royalty of our Savior. Can I get an amen to that? So everything inside the holy of holies is a picture of the Lord and everything on the outside is a picture of judgment. Now we know that Jesus was judged for us the altar itself had four points and, and it was perfect for a man to lay down on, but they would put a, you know, a lamb or a, an oxen or a bull or a goat. And they would, t- you know, the four places, they would take its blood and sprinkle on the four places. And they would go then to the bronze laver and cleanse themselves before they entered into the holy place. So everything on the outside was made of bronze, speaking of judgment. Everything on the inside was made of gold, speaking of the deity of Christ. Now, here's the great thing. He was wounded and judged for our transgressions, and he is God. He is both the lamb that was slain and the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Amen? He was both the the son of man and the son of God. He was fully man and righteously judged for our our sin as as if he lived our life, so we could be rewarded as if we lived his. And so when you see that, whenever you see bronze in the Bible, think of judgment. Think of judgment, because that's what it most often represents. Under the laver were supports of cast bronze beside each wreath. Verse 31. Its opening inside the crown at the top was one cubit in diameter, and the opening was round and shaped like a pedestal. One and a half cubits uh, uh, in the outside diameter. Also on the opening were engravings, but the panels were square, not round. Under the panels were four wheels. And the axles of the wheels were joined in the cart, and the height of one wheel was one and a half cubits, two and a half feet. The workmanship of the wheels was like the workmanship of a chariot wheel. The axle pins, their rims, their spokes, and their hubs were all of cast bronze. And there were four supports at the four corners of each cart. Its supports were part of the cart itself, on top of the cart, at the height of a half a, a, half a cubit. It was perfectly round. And on top of the cart, its flanges and panels were of the same casting. Now, guys, when you're reading through this, somebody's making every one of these parts. And every one of these parts needed to be made perfectly or the chariot doesn't move or the cart doesn't move. And guys, that's how the body of Christ operates. As all of us use the gifts God's given us, it allows the church to be as fruitful as the Lord would have it to be. Got to pick up, pick it up here. So here it says, there are four supports in each cart. <laughs> then we get down to verse 35 on top of the cart, half a cubit. Verse 36, on the plates of the flanges in the panels were engraved cherubim, lions, and palm trees. Palm trees, Jack, just for you, bro. Palm trees. Wherever there was a clear space on each with wreaths all around. And again, cherubim, uh, angels, lions, lion of the tribe of Judah, palm trees. What did they wave when Jesus entered into Jerusalem? Palm trees. The Bible rocks. Amen. Thus he made 10 carts. All of them were of the same mold, one measure, one shape. Then he made 10 lavers of bronze. Each laver contained 40 baths and each laver was four cubits. So they had the, they had the large laver. And then on the sides 
of, of the court where they were making sacrifices. There were these smaller portable lavers that could be moved around. So when a lot of sacrifices were taking place and all the different priests were cleansing themselves, they were available to be used. Then it says there in verse 39, and he put five carts on the right side of the house and five on the left side of the house. He set the sea on the right side of the house toward the southwest. So finally, the furnishings for the temple itself. So bronze is all out in the courtyard. And again, I love this picture here of how uh, everything that God does is done decently and in order. And, and finally, let's take a look at what's inside uh, or furnishes for the temple. Some that are still on the outside. Haram made the lavers, verse 40, and the shovels and the bowls. So Haram finished doing all the work that was due for King Solomon for the house of the Lord. And the two pillars and the two bowls shaped capitals that were on top of them. These are the two mighty pillars that you entered into uh, when you entered into the temple temple, the courtyard there. The two networks covering the two bowl-shaped capitals were on top of the pillars. 400 pomegranates on the two networks, two rows of pomegranates on each network to cover the two bowl-shaped capitals which are on top of the pillars. Then 10 carts and 10 lavers on the carts. One C, that's the big swimming pool type place, laver. The 12 oxen under the sea, again, these molded oxen on top of which it set, the pots, the shovels, the bowls, all these articles which Haram made for King Solomon for the house of the Lord were burnished bronze. In the plain of Jordan, the king had them cast in clay molds between Sukkoth and Zaratan. It took 13 years because every one of these things had to be made out of a mold. And, and the hot Metal had to be poured in, then it had to cool, and it had to be shaped. And it took a long time. It took these craftsmen a long time. It took Haram a long time to do this exactly the way that he had been instructed to do it. Again, just because you're called doesn't mean it won't cost you something. And it doesn't mean it won't require sacrifice. And it doesn't mean it won't take time. Amen? Amen? King David said, I will not sacrifice that which costs me nothing. Haram spent 13 years, no doubt, probably every single day of it. No doubt exhausted when he was done, but doing it right because we're doing it for the Lord. Amen? And too often people want to serve if it doesn't take up too much of my time. I can serve, but do I have to come to practice to be on the worship? Can I just show up whenever I want? Can I just show up? And Would we ever let just let someone show up and just teach the Bible? What's the answer to that? No way. No way. And same thing with teaching the children or teaching the men's study or whatever service you're... Guys, whatever we do, we want to do for the Lord. We need to do it well. We need, and it should cost us something, including our time and our effort. Can I get an amen to that? Lord, help us to be faithful, to use the gifts you've given us for your kingdom and for your glory. It says there in verse... Uh, 46. In the plain of Jordan, the king had them cast. And in verse 47, and Solomon did not weigh all the articles because there were so many, the weight of bronze was not determined. Thus Solomon, all the furnishings. Now, the, the final point here, all the temple furnishings pointing to Jesus. This last portion here is we're going to see that everything's made of gold and it points to the deity of the Lord. It says, then Solomon and all the furnishings made for the house of the Lord, the altar of gold, 
the table of gold on which was the showbread and the lampstands of pure gold, five on the right side and five on the left in front of the inner sanctuary in the flowers and the lamps and the wick trimmers of gold. So we know this, that on the outside was the altar, the bronze altar, sacrifices were made there, blood was shed. Behind that was the laver where the priest would cleanse himself. When he went into the holy, of holy place, he would open this veil, if you will, and he would walk into the holy place. In the holy place, as soon as he walked in, all these made of gold on the left-hand side, he saw the golden lampstand. The golden lampstand because Jesus is the light of the world. And it was the only light inside the holy place. So on the left side was the golden lampstand. On the right side was a table of showbread. There'd be 12 loaves of bread one representing each of the different 12 tribes of Israel. And they would constantly be baking these. And it's a picture, according to scripture, of having fellowship. You know, the Bible says, the, Bible, the word of God, the four things we continue in as the church, the breaking of bread, the apostles' doctrine, breaking of bread, fellowship, and prayer. Can I get an amen? And breaking of bread can speak both of communion, but also the agape feast. And what do we do on the first Sunday of the month? We have communion, remembering the cross of Calvary. And then we enter into fellowship with each other in an agape feast. Amen. And the table of showbread was a representation of the fellowship God had with his people. And they were constantly re, you know, taking out those old loaves and the priests would, would usually be fed with them. And they would bring in new loaves because our, our relationship with the Lord should always be, our, our fellowship with him should be fresh. Can I get an Amen. And so these are, he's the bread of life. He's the light of the world. And then you get to the back, right before you go to the Holy of Holies. And there's a very thick veil there. And there was the altar of incense made out of gold. And the priests would go in to make sure that incense never went out. And the smoke from that incense would float over the top of the veil and go into the Holy of Holies. And what's that a picture of? Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, ever making intercession for us. Amen? Now, the Holy of Holies itself, we've been talking about this, only on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, could the high priest go into the Holy of Holies, only he, only on that day, and only with the blood of a firstborn, you know, spotless animal, and he would come into the Holy, and he would take the blood, and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat. So the ark, again, is a box, not a boat, amen? And that box had manna, Aaron's rod, because he's the great high priest, Jesus is, amen. And the Ten Commandments, he's a fulfillment of the law. Had the angels with their wings touching. He would sprinkle the blood in the middle. In the temple, there were seven, foot, seven and a half foot tall angels on each side. And then what, what that picture is, he would go in, sprinkle that blood. When they ran into the tomb, in the morning Jesus rose from the dead. One of the gospel accounts tells us there were angels at the foot and at the head. So the Ark of the Covenant was a picture not only of Jesus, but of the resurrection, Amen. And all of these things were made out of gold because they speak of the deity of Christ. The bronze speaks of judgment. The gold speaks of deity. Then it says there, the basins and the trimmers, the bowls and the ladles and the censers of pure gold and the hinges of gold, both on the doors of the inner room of the most 
holy place. And that's the holy of holies for the doors of the main hall of the temple. So all the work that King Solomon had done for the house of the Lord has finished, was finished. And Solomon brought in the things which his father had dedicated, the silver and gold and the furnishings. He put them in the treasuries of the house of the Lord. See, David had gathered stuff together for this day. Even though he didn't get to see it happen, he gathered it together anyway. And often the sacrifices we make today, we may not see the fruit of them until we get to heaven. Amen? Now notice... David had amassed quite a bit of wealth over the years, the spoil of all the wars that he fought. And what did he do with the treasure? He set it aside to be given to the Lord in the day that the temple was built. What do you treasure? When you wake up in the morning, what's the first thing you think about? See, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If you grab your phone to check the stock market, maybe your treasure's in your 401k. If if you wake up in the morning and you turn on TV, maybe your treasure's in entertainment. If you wake up in the morning and you're focused on anything else, guys, when we wake up in the morning, the first thing we ought to think about is the Lord. Can I get an amen? Yes, Lord, your servant here. Let's begin our day with the Lord. Let's spend our day with the Lord. Let's end our day with the Lord. If you invest in heavenly things, guess what kind of things you'll be thinking about? Heavenly things. I can honestly tell you guys that I think about you guys many times every single day. And as I drive down the freeway, when you guys come to mind, I'm praying for each one of you by name. You know why? Because my passion in my heart is for the Lord and for his people. And you guys are my family. And every time we get together, it's a family reunion. Amen. And we gather together to minister to each other. The similarities between the way God wanted the temple built and how he works in your life. You know, God spares no expense in putting all these things together for the temple. And he spared no expense in doing what was necessary to make you a part of his family. Can I get an amen? He sent his son to suffer and die that you might have eternal life. You know what? We may sometimes think that our lives are a bunch of haphazard events, but just like we saw here, our God is a God of order and God is not surprised by anything you go through in life. Can I get an amen to that? Sometimes you think, well, my life is a mess and it wasn't what I expected. Let me encourage you. God's not surprised. God is in control and God's not through with you. Amen. And wherever you find yourself right now, God has a plan for your life going forward. The enemy wants to condemn you about your past, and God just wants you to be faithful in your future. Amen? And so the exhortation here is that because we see God is such a God of order, and the way he built the temple was so amazing, guess what? We are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. And God has a plan for our lives. And I'm so thankful. Look, when I almost died in 2009 and I spent almost a year in the hospital and I would say from the pulpit in Santa Cruz all the time, the church has exploded. God was doing great things. I mean, we just bought a full power radio station, school ministry, Bible call. I mean, God was just blessing the place crazy. We moved to this new facility. God is in control. And I would say from the pulpit, I will be here till I go to heaven. I will baptize your grandchildren. I don't say that anymore. Because God had another plan. And, you know, sometimes in your flesh, you think back, if I was still there, what would be happening now? Guess what? God never wanted me to still be there. God always knew I would be here. And I wouldn't trade it for anything because God's ways are always better than my ways. Can I get an amen? And God knows what he's doing. And he's a God of order. And when we read through this, this may seem tedious. But guess what? Every word in the Bible is in there for a reason. Amen. And a lot of commentary, I listen to people teaching this text and they go, and then verse 22 to 51 gives you a list of stuff in the text. Next verse. I'm like, oh, no, no, no. 
If God wrote it down and God protected it and God brought it to us, the very least we can do is read it and do the best we can to understand it. Can I get an amen? So where your treasures, there your heart will be also. Put God first, give God your best. When God calls you, be encouraged because he will equip you. May you come to church with a heart to worship. And then finally, all the temple furnishings again that we saw, they all point to Jesus. And aren't you glad that you don't just know about him, but you know him. Amen. Lord, we thank you for your word. And again, I know for many, this can be a tedious chapter, but we know it's in the Bible for a reason. And Lord, I thank you that you're a God of order. And I thank you that you're a God who's never surprised. And I thank you, Lord, that even in our own lives, just as you put the temple together the way you wanted it to be built, so too you've done in our lives. Lord, even though we have failed you in the past, you're still faithful now. And Lord, I pray for everyone here that we would recognize where we are today is by divine appointment. And Lord, help us to be used for your kingdom and your glory. Help us to be tools in the hands of our master. Lord, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said...